Rough year for your favorite NFL team? Join me, Danny Heifetz, along with Danny Kelly, Ben Solak, and Craig Krolbeck on the Ringer NFL Draft Show, where we talk about all things NFL Draft, and more importantly, how to fix your mediocre team. Check out the Ringer NFL Draft Show every Tuesday and Thursday. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Callista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car, Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. It is Monday, April 10th. This weekend was the year anniversary of the complicated $43 billion transaction that brought together two massive entertainment companies, Warner Media and Discovery, into Warner Brothers Discovery under CEO David Zasloff. HBO, TNT, the Warner Brothers Studio, smashed together with TLC, HGTV, and tons more. How did you celebrate? I watched John Oliver and that great Succession episode on HBO Max. The tagline of the new company was, the stuff that dreams are made of, a line from the Maltese Falcon, Warner Brothers film. But if we're honest, the year hasn't been a dream for Warner Brothers Discovery. Massive layoffs, a huge debt load, a weak advertising market that cut into some of the revenue projections that the merger was based on. And big content cuts, meaning fewer shows and movies. That led to a bunch of negative headlines, outrage in Hollywood over things like scrapping the Batgirl movie for a tax credit. We've covered a lot of that on the show. The company's stock is down about 40% from its first day of trading, although it's up about 60% since the start of this year. So investors are at least a little more optimistic about its future and its strategy. That strategy has also completely changed in this year under Zaslav. They care about putting movies in theaters. They aren't sending everything directly to HBO Max. They're resetting the DC universe. They've tried to depoliticize CNN. We'll get into some other ways as well and why it impacts the shows and movies that we all see. And this week, we're going to see maybe the biggest strategy shift of all. On Wednesday, Zasloff is set to unveil a rebranding of HBO Max that is expected to drop the HBO part from the name and incorporate all that high quality, sarcasm intended, discovery content like 90 Day Fiance, Dr. Pimple Popper, my favorite, My Feet Are Killing Me. It's a real show, super gross. Warner Brothers Discovery was a big bet that more scale and better management could set up these great media assets for the streaming age. So we're going to get into that today with Lucas Shaw, our Monday guy, and ask, is Warner Brothers Discovery actually working? From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Lucas Shaw. Lucas, are you excited about the performance of your top pick, Super Mario Brothers, this past weekend? 
You know, uh, it was it was the pick I was most confident in, and I'm glad that my confidence has been rewarded. Uh, you know, obviously we'll see how what the what the the holds are weeks over week, but that number is is bigger than pretty much anyone predicted, and I think it's now in the running. It, it feels almost inevitable that it'll be the biggest movie of the year. Oh, you're you're prepared to say that? Wow, three hundred. No, I'm not there yet, but I'm getting close. I mean, three yeah, three seventy seven million. Over the five-day opening, that's huge. Yeah. All right. Today, we're talking about the year anniversary of the Warner Brothers Discovery transaction. Uh, it's kind of weird. It seems like it's been much longer than a year, considering how much we talk about everything, that the, all the fallout from that deal. But um, I wanted to go through and kind of do a check-in and a check-up on everything that's happened and some of the strategy shifts and how that will play out with the shows and movies that we see and how we see them. What what do you think the biggest strategy shift among many has been over the past year at this company? It's sort of a, a tie between going all in on movie theaters, which was a, a, a big shift on from the previous regime, which was, you know, tr- made streaming the number one priority above everything else. And then right. and sacrificed huge revenue streams in order to just dump all the movies, all the shows directly on HBO Max to try to build up that streaming audience, which did work. HBO Max is much larger than it would have been had they not done that, in my opinion. But Zasloff at, at Warner Discovery, he's all about revenue. And they are just trying to wring as much cash as they can out of everything. Subscriber numbers be damned. And that's a huge strategy shift. Yeah. Well, I would say there's been a little bit of revisionist history on on what the the Jason Kyler's regime strategy was with streaming. Yes, it was all streaming, but the movie thing was the temporary of putting all the movies on streaming. He at said the same so, time. but I think but, if you got a couple of uh, whiskey sours in him, he would say this is the future and we're going to do this forever. I, that's my guess. I disagree, but I'd say p- compare compared with that is the sort of the streaming rebrand that is is to come um where they're they're combining discovery plus essentially with HBO Max into a new service that's probably going to be called Max and it's going to co- cost the same and you know will is i i think the, the the moment that determines if this merger was a good idea oh really you think this is the definitive like Succeed or fail moment this Wednesday when they announce the new rebranded service. I mean, the two-hour presentation is not <laughs> when things get determined, or hopefully it's two hours or less. But I think whether this service works or not will determine if the deal was worth it. Because they had this whole force metaphor. I forget if it was David Zaslav or John Stanky who runs AT&T, which previously owned Warner Media. But about how there's like the river and you got to get to the other side. And Netflix was already on the other side and had built a nice house. And Disney had gotten the other side and was building a house. And like, right. if they were going to get to the other side, they needed they were going to be better together. But that's the scale argument. And Correct. I feel like the scale argument has sort of been walked back a little bit. I mean, we see it in how Warner Discovery is is paring back the international operations. They're trying to sell off more of their content to other higher bidders rather than trying to build up the platform they own. Uh, that that suggests to me that they might be, you know, to stretch a metaphor, comfortable sitting on an island in the middle of the river rather than on the other side. 
Yeah, but I guess look at sort of what the company consists of, right? So they've got a bunch of cable networks, all the Discovery networks and the Turner networks, the TBS, TNT, CNN. Mm-hmm. We, we know that linear TV is not a growth business, right? Like the audience for all those networks is going down. The ad sales are at best flat and considering the state of the economy right now, down. Um, you know, HBO is not adding more premium subscribers through linear. The movie business, while it's recovering, is trying to get back to where it was. And then this company has like a little bit of uh, of a video game business. So the only thing that could possibly grow in a real way for them is streaming. And that's the thing that's going to convince Wall Street that they're moving in the right direction. I it's they, it's great to build up these other revenue streams or kind of restore some of the stuff that that hadn't happened. But unless they make the streaming service considerably larger, I don't see how how this this deal is seen as a big success. Yeah, and you'd think that by adding all this stuff together while still offering Discovery Plus as a standalone service, which they have also said they're going to do, that there will be a rush of new subscribers to HBO Max or whatever they call it? Oh, I don't, I'm not sure I believe that, but they have to believe <laughs> it, right? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, if uh, it, it, I do think that the larger one-stop shop of you know all your favorites in one place is a particularly compelling offer considering that the HBO brand, as we've talked about on this show, has been great for a certain level of clientele. It is not great for other people that say, see it as being not for them. And as long as that service was called HBO Max, people were going to be turned off to becoming subscribers if they don't like the HBO content. So this presumably will help that. And HBO will still be there as a tile for people like me who just want HBO. That is definitely the argument. I'll be curious if trying to sell people on a wholly new idea will move the needle, right? Because we kind of saw Comcast try it with Peacock and it hasn't worked super well. I just think it's hard to do the rebrand mid-flow. But, you know, we'll see. And one of the things that they're definitely trying to do is load up this soon-to-be-renamed service with big, splashy titles that they're excited about. You know, it's it's one of the reasons why they're rebooting DC, which which is another big strategy shift. It's one of the reasons why they're trying to to close a deal on this new Harry Potter show, which we reported about last week. Um, you know, they want those those uh, you know the, the 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 franchises and the properties that are going to make people sign up because it's as big as Disney's Marvel or Star Wars, right? And stuff that is not necessarily HBO style programming. What do you make? Uh, what do you make of the of the of the of the new DC? Let's talk about that because I think that if if you had to if you ask me what the biggest strategy shift in terms of what the consumer is going to notice, uh, I think the reboot of DC is probably the top one in my book because they are essentially cutting ties with the strategy that the previous regime had, where they were kind of. Still in the Zack Snyder universe, but trying to distance themselves from the Zack Snyder universe and having these multiple DC character-driven shows and movies playing out in their own universes. The Joker universe is different from the Justice League universe, which is different from the CW shows and or wherever those go now. I, I think this now unified kind of Marvel-style strategy is not going to work, in my opinion. I don't think that... And first of all, 
the reason Warner did that strategy for for DC previously is because it made a, lot, a ton of money. I mean, you all the different ways these characters were exploited generated a ton of revenue for the company. And the shift to this one universe, everything is connected, everything makes sense. I, I don't think that that's going to, it, it, it just, if, if Marvel didn't exist and Marvel hadn't done it successfully, we'd be saying, what? Like, why are they trying this? Why, why do people need to have a coherent through line for everything? I, it's a it's a good point, but I'm curious. There are a lot of people who assume that this, as an asset, Warner Brothers Discovery is just going to get like bought or sold again in a, in a couple of years. So I'm curious: Will we see the first DC movie from the new strategy under this regime? Like, will <laughs> David Zaslav still be in charge when you see James Gunn and Peter Safran's first DC movie? Well, that those are two separate questions. They are some That's of fair. the scenarios. He could be in charge of the combined, yeah. Exactly. If they do a merger with a NBC Universal or Paramount Global or something like that, it could be premised on him running all of the assets. So the strategy presumably would not change if he's still in charge. Will this company still be Warner Brothers Discovery when the first James Gunn, Peter Safran DC movie comes out? Uh, probably not. I mean, we're looking at what? What do they date the Superman movie for? 2025? Like, that's a long time in the media universe these days. And it's only until 2024 that Warner's is tied up from doing some kind of a transaction based on the rules of the reverse Morris trust. So, you know, it, these things take a long time. That's why it's really disruptive to have all of these different transactions going on behind the scenes when you're trying to build out a long-term movie strategy. Part of the reason why, Marvel has been so successful is because Disney took it over when the, the original Iron Man came out via Paramount. And when Disney took over Marvel, it set a path for Marvel to run for a decade and map out phase one, phase two, phase five. That has not been possible at DC because of all of the regime change. Yeah. Speaking of things that have been remade in Zaslav's strategy. Let's move to CNN, because that is another area that has had seen a complete strategy shift under Warner's discovery. Jeff Zucker, the previous run uh, head of CNN, leaned into the partisanship, the anti-Trump stuff, the primetime programming that played a little bit more like talk radio. Zaslav said from the beginning, I don't want that. I want down the middle. John Malone, the board member, wants CNN to not be a politicized brand. And over the past year under Chris Licht, they've basically done that, or at least tried to do that. And the results are not great when it comes to the ratings and the financials. How long can this go on at CNN? How long can they, you know, put their noses in the air and say, we are trying to do something noble here and have a down the middle news network while the audience seems to be rejecting that? It can go on for as long as as long as it doesn't affect the financials. I don't well, think But that, it is. It will affect the financials. I mean, fewer viewers equals less money. Somewhat, but you have to remember that CNN makes a lot of its money from carriage fees. Sure. The ad, the advertising around TV news is like it's there, but it's not the most lucrative part of it. And so, as long as they can still force cable providers to pay them a bunch of money under long-term deals, which I assume they can, it's a little bit less of an issue for them. 
a little bit less, but one of the great advantages that CNN has had over, say, Fox News is they can sell ads and brands do want to deal with them. Um, so I just, you know, there's going to be a financial hit. And I wonder in a company that is so focused on debt service and the bottom line, how long this CNN experiment can go on. Chris Licht, who's the new head of CNN, would probably say wait and see with my various programming approaches because it feels like for all of the the you know the rapid change over there, he's still sort of in the middle of remaking the programming. That's line. true. That's fair. And so I, I imagine that he's got sort of a, a two or three year run runway to figure it out, especially because he came in. He was a pretty high profile hire. Uh, and he had a fairly close relationship with Zaslav. Not like they're best buddies, but they were they were kind of friendly. And so uh, I, I imagine that he's got a little bit more time. And also, just it's as much as all these guys care about uh, about news and all of that. From a business perspective, he's got bigger issues. He's got to figure out streaming service. He's got to figure out the movie studio, and he's got to figure out sports. Um, that's true. It's just it's just an anomaly here at a company that is so focused on the bottom line. They are ignoring the bottom line on the CNN strategy, which leads me the, the best theory I've heard about this is that if there is a transaction coming up, they know that this company will be for sale or a merger target in 2024, 2025, that if they can successfully cleanse the CNN brand from the politicization under the Zucker era, that it will be more attractive to spin off or sell to some other buyer down the road. And in some transaction with like a, you know, Comcast or someone else, that CNN is dispensable. They could sell it off to someone and someone would buy it, especially if it is no longer perceived as, you know, an anti-Trump voice box in the U.S. Do you think it was that politicized during the Jeff Zucker era? I just feel like under Trump, you could not tell the difference really between MSNBC and CNN. And now you definitely can. Um, all right, let's move on to the other category I want to talk about, which is sports and the sports strategy under Warner Discovery, because it has changed, maybe not as dramatically as some of the others, but they, you know, David Zaslav's famous quote, we don't need the NBA when talking about the upcoming rights negotiation for Turner. Um, I think most of us believe that he was just stunting to try to maybe uh, lower the price for those rights. Uh, but does Warner Brothers Discovery need the NBA? Yeah, and I think he's in a, <laughs> I think he's in a really tough spot on this one. Um, look, there are cable network TNT as a cable network, so much of its value comes from having NBA basketball. They have, yeah. they have two games a week during the season. It's they also have had the most popular or at least the most respected pregame postgame studio show and in inside the NBA. They just re-signed. Charles Barkley, one of the stars of that show, to this massive deal, which yeah, you although assume, they can get out of that if they don't have the rights, so they can sell, you know, trade him off to someone else. But they, they yeah. don't. That that's only if they get the rights. I, I honestly, the whole point of the cable bundle right now is to just milk as much as you can for as long as you can, and having one must see thing on a cable network makes it undroppable. Meaning, in this era where the cable networks are going to start to contract. If the NBA is on TNT and maybe even TBS, you can't drop those channels. So that's the value right there. It's tricky because you know that the costs are going to go way up. So from 
Zaslav's perspective, he's got to figure out how can I keep this keep some of this product but not have my costs go way up. So maybe I take less, like a game a week instead of or a night a week instead of mm-hmm. two. But also he's dealing with the NBA where they now have they're gonna have a lot of interested parties. Disney, ESPN, which which is the other major rights holder, is certainly gonna be back at the table. Amazon is expected to be a major bidder. Comcast, NBC Universal seems to be very interested. Um, and those are three companies with a lot more resources and a lot less debt than he's got. Yeah. And a lot more upside if they can score some of these rights and position themselves for the future. What do you think about sports on HBO Max? Do you think they'll try to go after some of the digital rights to put a few games, you know, get some exclusives or maybe even a playoff game that airs exclusively on HBO Max? They'll definitely go for streaming rights. I mean, they did as part of that the hockey deal that they did um, with the NHL. Uh, so I th- they'll 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 want to be able to wa- offer games that are on TNT probably at the same time uh, or or a similar time maybe on on Max. And then and then I think that you know they'd love to get some kind of streaming exclusives. The question is, does the league want to give them out? You know, part of p- probably part of their deal with a company like Amazon that they're trying to bring into the fold is that Amazon would really prioritize some streaming rights. We know that Disney would Well, ESPN, and maybe get a playoff game or two or something. Yeah. yeah. Disney with ESPN and ESPN Plus is going to want some kind of streaming. My my sense of what the NBA wants is that they're, like a lot of these leagues, they're going to keep sort of the biggest and most important matches on TV. And in particular, they're going to want it on broadcast for like the widest reach possible, right. but that they will experiment with certain streaming products. And there's so many NBA games. And there's also like this looming question of a lot of the local rights are held by these regional sports networks that are f- bankrupt right now. Yeah. And, and Warner Discovery has essentially notified the leagues that they want out of these deals. Yeah. So if that, that should or could at least give the NBA some flexibility to fuck around with its local rights or with its streaming rights. And I, I think the ne- these negotiations are, are really interesting. And if Warner Brothers Discovery somehow doesn't get any NBA games, that would be, pre- that would be a, a big problem. I agree. All right, so overall, big picture here, a year into Warner Brothers Discovery, do you see this as working? Not working? Somewhere in the middle? Probably somewhere in the middle. I mean, if you look, not that this is the the way to to judge it, right? But the stock just like tanked all of last year. <laughs> right. So much so that they changed the compensation scheme for the executives who came in with these big bonuses if they hit certain milestones for the stock. And at the end of the year, they're like, uh, you know what? Let's change that to a free cash flow metric. And people are like, why? Well, they get paid if they increase the cash flow for the company, regardless of the stock. So that's Somewhat hilarious and indicative of corporate America, but go on. But the stock has rebounded a lot this year, still down. Um, And so the question is, is that because people now believe in the strategy? Is it because they recognize there was an overreaction last year? You know, I think a lot of the things that that Zaz has done have made some sense. You know, restoring the deal where you can now sign up for Max through Amazon or some licensing to third parties, some ways to generate some extra revenue for the company. I I think probably in long term made some sense. Um, the movie studio is, but the rebuilding the movie studio is a long term play. CNN, to your point, does is is struggling right now. 
Um, you know, the ad market for the for the whole company is is pretty rough. And so it comes down to can they figure out growing the streaming service? Um, and as good as the programming from HBO has been, just consistently excellent. Um, they've scaled back some of the ambitions overseas, at least for right now. I'm just, I'm I'm not sure. I'm still not totally sure like what the vision is at the company. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, I think if you talk to the Warner Discovery guys, they feel a little bit vindicated because they got so much shit last year for all the cuts and scrapping the shows that had already been made and getting these tax write-offs and the layoffs and everything. And they were really the canary in the coal mine for Hollywood because you see all of these companies now doing a version of what Zasloff did last year. And they feel that that was 2022 and 2023 is the year where they kick the growth scheme into high gear. And by the end of this year, we'll really see what the fruits of all that hard decision-making last year are going to be. I'm not so sure about that because it depends on pretty optimistic estimates of what their revenue is going to be, especially from ad, the ad market, which they've had to revise down several times now. But I think from a financial perspective, it is working. They are doing what they promised Wall Street they would do when they came in. They would slash costs. They would reboot all these divisions. So Zaslav is sort of delivering on that promise while not necessarily like we don't know yet the creative aspects and kind of whether these strategic shifts are ultimately going to be beneficial long term. Yeah, look, you're you're totally right that they got a lot of crap for what every other company was then going to have to do. Um, part of it, I think, was the way that they went about it. But there is there is a renewed sense of optimism at that company that was not there three months ago. And we'll probably, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll see over the next nine months if that, was, if that was justified. All right. Thank you, Lucas. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Matt. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. All right, we're back with the call sheet. Craig, did you see all the news coming out of the Star Wars celebration this past weekend? Yes, too much to keep track of. <laughs> it's a lot of Star Wars. I am on the record as a Star Wars skeptic, as a disgruntled fan, and a kind of perplexed business watcher of the goings-on at Lucasfilm, and especially its president, Kathleen Kennedy, who I have a years-long now one-sided feud going with. She does not <laughs> respond to me, but I, I have my beef with Kathy Kennedy because of some of the bizarre choices that Lucasfilm has made. Namely, the fact that 
there hasn't been a Star Wars movie since 2019, and there doesn't really seem to be one on the horizon, despite all of these announcements. That's only four years ago. Did Do we need one? We do. Oh, I mean, it, it's franchise mismanagement not to have multiple movies in development. I know we don't need to go as crazy as Marvel has gone. Yeah, but there's been like four television shows since 2019. That is true. Uh, also been four Marvel television shows. And the whole purpose of having this amazing IP is to exploit it. Bob Iger wanted a movie every year. I mean, that was a little aggressive, but a Star Wars movie, prop, Star Wars properly managed, should have a movie every two to three years. So my prediction here, they, they made a bunch of announcements at Star Wars Celebration. They said that the project that's under development with a director named Charmina Abed Shinoy, um, that project cast Daisy Ridley. It's about her training a bunch of Jedis. After that, they announced new projects from James Mangold, who has the Indiana Jones movie this summer, Dave Filoni, who's been responsible for Mandalorian and Ahsoka, which is another series coming out, um, Taika Waititi, and even Sean Levy, the free guy director who's doing a Deadpool movie. My prediction is that all of those projects, besides the Daisy Risley movie, will never happen. And so is, is do all of these movies not come to fruition for the same reasons, or is it all different reasons why these projects flame out? I think there's lots of reasons, but the, the overarching theme here is that Lucasfilm is so precious about the Star Wars IP, and from what I've heard, averse to taking any kind of risk with it. At least in a movie. On, in a movie. Yes. And on TV, they're fine. The Disney Plus shows, the fact that something like Andor can exist within the Star Wars universe, great. When The Last Jedi came out and the fans were initially into it and then turned on it because it took a bunch of chances and you know turned the mythology on its head by saying, oh, Jedis aren't special. Anyone can be a Jedi. The fans freaked out. And that got all the way to the top of Lucasfilm. And Kathy Kennedy essentially threw the brakes on the next episode and said, okay, we're just going to go back to fan service, bring back the Emperor, like just play the hits. And I think what Disney found is that you can do that once or twice but that is not long-term strong franchise management. You have to expand and take chances. I am not a creative executive. I'm not going to tell Lucasfilm what to do, but I see the results here. And we are now in this, in this spot where Star Wars feels like a dormant film franchise, and that is a huge problem. I agree with that completely. I think that we should pass a law that, me, that, that says after a trilogy, you need to wait 10 years to reboot that series. Oh, see, I disagree. I think if you do it right, the demand is there. It's creative execution. Diminishing returns from a brand perspective, in my opinion. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. That, I mean, there's certainly overload when you consider all the Disney Plus shows. Um, but they could do one, two shows a year, and they could do one movie every two, three years. And I think the fans and the business would be served by that. I just remember when the Daisy Ridley Star Wars series, the, the, the new trilogy was announced, everybody was excited. We were all thrilled. Now, when a new Star Wars project is announced, not a single friend of mine texts one another about it. Nobody discusses it. No one cares. It's completely gone. Yeah, I know. There was an interesting tweet by a, a writer the other day who said Disney might have to prepare for Star Wars becoming a more niche franchise like Star Trek, where yeah. it will always have its engaged fan base, but the days of it being a big you know, all-encompassing A++ IP franchise are maybe numbered. And 
I would argue that that is creative failures and franchise management failures rather than simply the overload. Although the overload doesn't help. Uh, yeah, I think it's also, a vo I mean, it's a volume thing. Because when I think of Star Trek, I think of 300 episodes of content. When I think yeah. of Star Wars, I used to think of six movies. Yeah, I know. And now but that's changing. You know, what? you know what? Marvel does it. And Disney should be able to work that magic on Lucasfilm. All right, that's enough. Enough. <laughs> we'll get Kathleen in here on Wednesday. Uh, Kathy Kennedy, come on the show. Open invitation to come on the town and fight me. Lightsaber's optional. All right, that's <laughs> the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Lucas Shaw. I want to thank producer Craig Horbeck. And I want to thank you. We will see you on Wednesday. <laughs>